welcome to the next RevDem episode, to the Rule of Law section. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am the RevDem editor. Today is with me Professor Tomaso Pavone, Assistant Professor of Law and Politics at University of Arizona. Welcome, Tomaso. It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you. Thank you for coming to us. And we will move directly to your um, to the topic of our today's conversation, which is the book which was recently published by Tommaso, uh, The Ghostwriters. So let us start with the basic argument of your book, because The Ghostwriters challenges the great chunk of EU scholarship, which claimed that European project was advanced thanks to the national lower court judges who vehemently empowered themselves to disapply national legislation mostly via preliminary ruling procedure. This is obviously this kind of quiet revolution that was uh, proposed, this term was proposed by Professor Joseph Weiler. But instead you propose to embark on a fascinating journey behind the scenes of the judicial politics, because you look at the Euro lawyers from Italy, France and Germany who converted state judiciaries into vehicles of European change. So my first question to you would be, what made you think that judicial review was not enough to unite Europe? And how actually you discover, did you discover the ghostwriters? That's a great, uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, because I should preface it by saying that this argument that was developed by scholars like Joseph Weiler, elaborated by Anne-Marie Slaughter, Karen Alter, this was the very reason why I first started getting interested in studying law and politics in the EU as a PhD student um, in the United States. And um, so this argument, uh, maybe I can just quickly summarize it again for your, for your, um, for your audience, is that you know, the EU doesn't govern uh, primarily with soldiers and bureaucrats. It governs through a transnational network of courts. And national judges interspersed across the territories of the member states are kind of the EU's judicial street level bureaucrats, sort of the agents through which citizens are most likely to encounter the legal and political authority of the EU. And so the key question that motivated the judicial empowerment thesis is why would judges play ball? Why would they participate in the construction of Europe? And the conventional answer is that judges eagerly turn to European law to bolster their own power. Um, even the most humble justice of the peace would turn to European law and the European Court of Justice because this allowed them an opportunity to challenge national legislation with which they could, uh, with which they disagreed if they acknowledged the supremacy of European law, or to even in some sense contest the decisions of their own Supreme Courts. So they began to refer cases to the ECJ via a mechanism known as the preliminary reference procedure. Article 177 of the Treaty of Rome, and thus supplied the European Court of Justice with a stream of cases to advance European integration. So this is kind of the judicial empowerment thesis in a, in a nutshell. Judges turn to European law and the ECJ in order to bolster their own power. And so when I applied for funding to start doing some field research in the three largest founding member states of the EU, in Italy, in France, and Germany, I wanted to sort of get a granular sense of how this empowerment narrative looked like. I wanted to talk to judges about how they were turning to European law to empower themselves. And when I started to conduct interviews, judges were really not taken by my questions. In fact, one judge even fell asleep 
in the middle of our interview. And, you know, I wasn't a very experienced interviewer at the time, but I knew that this was bad, right? I was asking judges about things that didn't map on to their lived experience, their day-to-day reality. And so I came back after a couple of months of initial fieldwork feeling like I was totally lost. My interviews weren't going anywhere. And out of some sort of sense of desperation, I started to re-listen to the audio recordings of my interviews. And I noticed that in subtle ways, judges kept nudging me to taking seriously that applying European law was a lot harder than I thought, and that they rarely, if ever, even considered turning to to the European Court of Justice in practice, that something was obstructing them. And this is when I began to realize that maybe judges were not the kind of empowered entrepreneurs of change that I was assuming that they would be but that they actually were in an institutional context where they were very bureaucratically constrained and that maybe some other actors who I hadn't met yet were actually pushing judges to embrace European law in the court of justice. Then there was a follow-up question you had about how did they discover the ghostwriters? In subtle ways, it was judges themselves who started telling me, you know, don't look towards the bench, look towards the bar. Because judges started to say, look, we will only turn to European law and even consider the possibility of referring a case to the Court of Justice if stubborn lawyers are just sort of pushing us to do so and helping us to do so. So the judges themselves were the ones who were telling me, you know, your research shouldn't just be focusing on the courts, you should be focusing on lawyers in the bar. And then I started to read some of the first Uh, preliminary reference cases referred to the Court of Justice in the 60s and 70s. And I started to notice that the parties to those disputes were represented by the same handful of lawyers, these repeat player lawyers who showed up before the Court of Justice again and again. So when I returned to Europe for a more extensive period of fieldwork, about a year of fieldwork, I started to ask my interviewees, do you know so-and-so, this lawyer that kept showing up in these early cases, are they still alive? Are they still practicing? And they would say, oh yeah, of course I know so-and-so. Here's their phone number. Here's their email. They're still practicing or they're retired, but they'd be willing to speak with you. And so in some sense, that's how he started to discover these lawyers that became the protagonists of my book. Before we move to these ghostwriters, let me ask you about the court judges that you talked to uh, in your book, because the empirical evidence on national lower courts that you provide is really compelling and may make us disillusioned about the the contribution of the lower courts to the European project. In your admirable effort, really, you talked to hundreds of judges who shared with you the personal and institutional obstacles in referring a case to the ECJ. So would you mind sharing uh, what was, what were these obstacles? So that's a great question. So in a nutshell, what I began to realize is that the judicial empowerment thesis conflated an outcome with a process. So what I mean by this is it presumed that because applying European law stood to empower national judges, then national judges must have been the ones who mobilized European law in order to empower themselves. But what if that outcome is right yet the process leading to that outcome was wrong. And once I started to speak to judges, I started to realize that they were quite bureaucratically constrained, as they said, Um, and for three primary reasons. 
judges have historically been undertrained in European law. They have been historically constrained by onerous workloads, by piles of case files. And they've been subjected to the kind of conformist career pressures of their judicial hierarchies. So let's unpack this. First, the knowledge deficits. Well into the 1990s, most national judges in the founding member states of the EU had received no training in European law. It was only in 2000 that the European Judicial Training Network was created, but even now, only about 10% of national judges have participated in the European Judicial Training Network course load. And in a recent survey by the European Parliament, the survey of some 7,000 national judges found that three-fifths wouldn't even know how to refer a case to the European Court of Justice if the occasion required it. And this can lead to embarrassing mistakes. Judges could refer the case to the wrong court. And we have historical evidence of judges referring cases, say, to the European Court of Human Rights instead of the European Court of Justice. Judges might make a mistake. They might ask the European Court of Justice a question that has absolutely no relevance to European law. And let's remember that judges' reputation relies on their expertise, their legal expertise. And so judges instinctually want to avoid areas of law that they don't know, that they haven't mastered, because the risk of making an embarrassing mistake is high. So that's the first point. The second point has to do with workload pressure. And here, this is something that really the ethnographic fieldwork, actually visiting judges in national courts, really alerted me to this. I realized that lower court judges in particular are habituated to getting rid of piles of case files by applying pre-existing national law as conventionally interpreted. When you've got 100 cases you got to get through in a week, you're not looking for creative points of contact between national law and European law. You're trying to just sort of apply the laws that you know to try to get rid of these piles of case files. And in this view, trying to figure out how to refer a case to the court of justice, how to draft a where-formulated referral, can force you to have to take a week off to do this, which means that then you have to work on weekends or during vacation days to make up for the work that you didn't get done. So in other words, applying European law and soliciting the ECJ gets perceived as a burdensome rupture of routine to be avoided as, if possible. And finally, when it comes to hierarchical pressures, particularly in more centralized hierarchical judiciaries, like I guess a great example is the French administrative courts under the Conseil d'État. What you start to realize is that national judges might rebel, say, against their own Supreme Courts by referring the ECJ, and they might win that one-shot battle. But at the end of the day, their career advancement depends upon whether their superiors have a favorable reputation of them, whether they're not seen as overly mischievous and fastidious colleagues. And so this creates an incentive to basically defer a potentially controversial application of European law to Supreme Court judges and to not do so as a lower court, as a lower court judge. And um, there was even one French administrative judge that I talked to who said that they would perceive it as professional negligence, a breach of professional duty to basically rebel against the jurisprudence of their Supreme Court and turn to the ECJ to apply European law. So when you put these three factors together, you get an institutional context 
where judges perceive turning to European law and soliciting the ECJ as risky and as burdensome. And so in order to break free of these bureaucratic shackles, judges had to be pushed by outside actors who could sort of help them minimize the costs and highlight the benefits of Europeanizing judicial policymaking. And the question that is somehow linked to that, uh, to that problem, as you conducted an ethnographic research of contemporary lower courts, do you think that your findings somehow are applicable to the decades when the Euro lawyers did operate? This is a great and challenging question, which is, you know, a lot of my fieldwork in national courts was conducted over the past 10 years. So how do we know that these bureaucratic obstacles were also present in the past? And there, you have to rely on archival evidence and oral history evidence. So for instance, we know for a fact that training in European law, even though it's still lackluster in my view today, was almost ubiquitously missing in the 1960s and 1970s. If you look at the law school curriculum in French, Italian, and German law schools, European law, or at the time community law, was just not taught. It would sometimes be discussed as a small special section of an international law course. But what this basically means is that judges would you know, take their posts having received no training in European law. So we know the knowledge deficits were, if anything, much worse in the 1960s and 1970s. We know that lower court judges are always more burdened than their superiors. They have a lot more cases to discuss. And unlike their superiors, they not only, they not only have to adjudicate questions of law, they also have to adjudicate questions of fact. So they have a lot of work that they need to do. And this has been relatively constant over time. Um, and we know from the oral history evidence of some of my interviews with the surviving first generation Euro lawyers that these were the same kinds of obstacles that they encountered in the 1960s and 1970s. And so in some sense, some of the obstacles that I encountered served as this time machine that allowed me to sympathize with the challenges that the first Euro lawyers faced, um, the challenges that they relate to me in their oral history interviews. Sure, I think this is very convincing. And all those statistical material that you provided about the contemporary curricula, uh, legal curricula is also compelling, a compelling fact. And I will ask you about this French judge later on in our discussion. Now I could, yes. uh, I would like to ask you about the main characters of your book. So these ghostwriters. So who were actually um, the first generation Euro lawyers, those active before the 1980s, where did they predomin predominantly operate? And uh, a question that Euro, lawyer, Euro nerds might be interested in, how different these ghostwriters are from Antoine Vaucher's Euro lawyers? Great. So let me start maybe with a definition. Um, so what is a Euro lawyer? Uh, how do I define a Euro lawyer? To me, a Euro lawyer is an entrepreneurial lawyer who mobilizes European law to promote institutional and policy change. And they do so by seeking to convert national courts into a transmission belt that will link local civil society with the European Court of Justice. In other words, they're the agents that are trying to convert national courts into, these, into this network of European courts of first instance. 
Now, as I started seeking out the pioneers of Euro lawyering in Italy, France, and Germany in the 1960s and 1970s, I realized these political entrepreneurs were few and far between. In fact, my research led me to the trails of just 12 teams of lawyers. And who were they? They had certain distinguishing traits in common. Let me mention three. First, all of these Euro lawyers had survived the Second World War and were old enough to remember surviving the war. Some had their property expropriated, some lost family members, some became refugees or had their own close calls with death. So they were very skeptical of the power of the state and politically committed to a liberal project of moderating state power through law. And they did so by turning to the fledgling European community. Second, a majority of these Euro lawyers acted upon this kind of political liberalism, this liberalist drive, by founding the first transnational lawyers associations to promote the knowledge and practice of European law. And here the big one is FIDE, uh, the Fédération pour le droit, uh, Fédération internationale pour le droit européen, and its network of national subsidiaries, right? Um, and this was crucial because, again, in the 1960s and 1970s, you couldn't get European legal training in national law schools. So oftentimes these lawyers associations were doing the things that national law schools were failing to do. There was and no finally, EUI. <laughs> there was no EUI, that's right, exactly. Um, and finally, as I consulted the writings and spoke with the pioneers who were still alive, um, it was clear that they saw their lawyering as a politics via other means. They were mischievous. These were mischievous lawyers, oftentimes with difficult personalities who relished their capacity to provoke national policy reforms through their litigation efforts. And there's a quote from one of these Euro lawyers, Paolo De Caterini, who I think really captures this participatory mischievous drive. He told me in an interview that the 1960s and 1970s were, quote, a magical moment. There were juridical problems where you basically had to invent everything. You set the fuse and it exploded with big booms well into the 1980s. There was a sense that we could do the unthinkable and we were captured by our interests, by the beauty of things, the beauty of novelty. And it wasn't about omnipotence. It was about participating, participating, of course, in the judicial construction of Europe. Yeah. Um, and then you had a follow-up question on, how the Euro lawyers I'm speaking of are distinct from the Euro lawyers that Antoine Vaucher discusses, say, in his book, Brokering Europe. Um, so Vaucher's work, uh, he's a political sociologist um, uh, in, in France, is a great inspiration for this book, which largely builds upon uh, his own. But Vaucher, who popularized the term Euro lawyer, um, has a slightly different focus. For Vaucher and other great legal sociologists like Lola Avril, a Euro lawyer is an, an, an actor with legal training who sort of shuttles about between private practice, state institutions, and EU institutions in order to promote European law, usually through non-litigious means. So, you know, maybe they're in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of France for a few years, then they join the European Commission's legal service, um, or um, they become an assistant at co-repair, um, then they uh, go into private practice and they become a lobbyist in Brussels. So these are actors who 
try to create an autonomous field of European law and help reify what we would recognize today as the Brussels bubble. So, they, so their focus is very much on these legal actors who shuttle around various poles of power to create this field of European law in Brussels. And they do so primarily through non-litigation forms of mobilization, whereas I'm focused on lawyers who kept their feet squarely within their home states and their local communities and try to change the behavior of local courts through litigation. So they weren't trying to create a field of European law to which they could escape. So their ticket to going to Brussels, they were trying to provoke Europeanizing change on the ground. And even though they were oftentimes friends and they knew the Euro lawyers in Brussels, at the commission, in the various ministries of the member states, their behavior and their forms of Euro lawyering were quite different. So let us talk about this behavior, because usually empirical research brings not only hidden um, insights, but also great stories and your book is no different in that regard. So would you mind sharing a story or two how these Euro lawyers initially worked on the construction of the case before the national court? Because some of the stories you, you mentioned are absolutely hilarious. First, more generally, what, what were the strategies of legal mobilization of these Euro lawyers? What repertoire of strategic litigation did they invent? They invented a repertoire that has two main elements. The first element is the construction of lawsuits and test cases. And the second element is the ghostwriting of preliminary references to the court of justice. So when it comes to constructing lawsuits, these Euro lawyers brokered connections with local import export companies, with agricultural associations, and they did it in order to seek out clients who were willing to deliberately break national laws that violated European law. And these Euro lawyers sometimes couldn't find clients willing to do this. It's weird when a lawyer comes to you and tells you, let's break a law, right? Lawyers are supposed to help you comply with the law, right? And so <laughs> when clients were difficult to persuade, had, when Euro lawyers had a hard time persuading potential clients, they sometimes turned to friends or family members when a real client was unavailable. And then once they got before a national, oftentimes a national lower court, they pivoted to mobilizing their expertise in European law. So they educated national judges via detailed memos that would serve as crash courses in European law, the A's, B's, and C's. In 1957, six member states came together and created the European community. Article 177, really all of the basics that national judges had not received in their legal training in law school. And then even when they persuaded judges, judges would say, I don't have the time or the knowledge of how to draft a preliminary reference. So the lawyers would do it for them. They would quite literally draft a memo with a motivation and the exact wording of the questions that the national judge could refer to the court of justice. And in so doing, they decreased the reputational risks and the labor costs of mobilizing European law and soliciting the ECJ. And I think there's one case that really illustrates both elements of the ghostwriter's repertoire. It's a case from 1976 uh, called Dona versus Mantero. Mm -hmm. And it's the case that gave the European court the opportunity to establish the free movement of professional athletes throughout the common market which sparked a veritable revolution in European sports. 
Now, it turns out that the ghostwriter of this case was one of the first Euro lawyers in Italy, a woman named Vilma Viscardini. And Viscardini was a pioneer, a trailblazer in more ways than one. She was the first woman admitted to practice, to legal practice, in her small hometown of Rovigo in northeast Italy. During her college studies, she fell in love with a man named Gaetano Donà, who was active in the European Federalist movement. And in the early 1970s, they both moved to Brussels to work in the European Commission. And it was there that Viscardini and her husband started feeling like they lived in a bubble. When they would go back home for Christmas, nobody back home, their friends in the judiciary and in, in the bar, nobody back home had any idea what the European community was or what the European Commission was doing. So she decided to, in the 1970s, to move back to her hometown and try to promote European law from the bottom up. She started going to schools, to civic associations, to talk about the European community. But she recalls feeling like people would look at her funny, like she was recounting fairy tales. So that's when she decided to construct a test case that would demonstrate in a really concrete way the far-reaching impact that European law could have on people's lives. And she zeroed in on the one thing that she knew all Italians and Europeans cared about, and that is football, right? <laughs> so she knew that most European states, including Italy, required that you be a national of that state in order to be employed in one of its football clubs. And she was convinced that this violated European rules protecting the free movement of workers in the European community. After all, are not professional athletes workers? Are they not employed? Do they not receive a salary? So she reached out to a friend in Rovigo named Mario Mantero, who happened to be the ex-president of the local football club. And she constructed a test case as follows. Mr. Mantero would task her husband, who was still in Brussels working at the commission, with publishing a recruitment ad for football players in a Belgian sports magazine. So this ad basically said, come play for us in Sunny Rovigo, inquire within, right? And then Mr. Dona would ask to be reimbursed for the expense of publishing this ad. And Mr. Mantero would refuse. Mr. Dona, he would say, you've acted prematurely. Don't you know that Italian law forbids me from even considering to hire foreign football players? No reimbursement for you. And then Mr. Dona would turn to his wife, Miss Viscardini, and sue to challenge Italian law before the local justice of the peace, who happened to be another family friend and practicing lawyer. And then Miss Viscardini provided the justice with a crash course in European law and with a full copy of the judicial order of referral that the judge could use to stay the proceedings and refer a set of questions to the Court of Justice. And in an interview with me, Miss Viscardini recalls, and I'm going to quote her real quick. She said, quote, obviously, I had to prepare everything myself, writing both parties' briefs in the lawsuit before the justice, as well as the judge's order of referral to the European court. And this was all possible because Mr. Mantero and the justice of the peace were both lawyers who knew me and my husband personally, and they placed their maximum trust in us, end quote. So I think this case really showcases both elements of the ghostwriter's repertoire, the need to remain embedded in the local community, to have friends in the local judiciary, to know what issues would be salient for legal mobilization, while at the same time having that experience, which in this case Viscardini got when she was in the legal service of the European Commission, in European law, in order to be able to credibly tell a national judge, let me do the work of drafting a preliminary reference for you. 
the history of EU law, thanks to your book, becomes really interesting story. So I invite our listeners to get to read Thomas's book because it's full of these kind of stories about Euro lawyers before the national courts. I wanted to move to another topic of your book. So uh, about uh, how Euro lawyers transformed slowly into Euro firms. Uh, this slow transformation mm. is somehow gloomy as you describe it in your book, but still fascinating. So as you wrote, even though the Euro lawyers in Italy, France, and Germany were successful in soliciting the ECJ. They did not manage to transfer the knowledge to the academic institutions in their hometowns. Instead, as you argue, their role was gradually assumed by huge corporations staffed with lawyers with considerable knowledge of EU law. So in your view, what were the main factors facilitating this change? Would you associate this transformation with the community enlargement and gradual globalization of the legal profession? Yes, absolutely. And, and let me share a personal anecdote of how this sense that the Euro lawyers that I was studying from the 60s and 70s were in some sense um, the kind of pioneers of a bygone era. And this was a realization that I had when I started to make friends with young aspiring Euro lawyers in Italy, France, and Germany. I made a lot of friends over the course of fieldwork, people my age who wanted to practice European law and who shared the kind of Europeanism of the Euro lawyers from the 60s and 70s. And as I started telling them about the activities of the first Euro lawyers, what I was finding over the course of field research, there was this sense of, you know, Tom, this is fascinating, but there's no way we could do this today. And the reason that there's no way that we could do this today is because they felt this extraordinary pressure once they graduated law school to join a large multinational corporate law firm, almost always specializing in European economic law. So we're talking about taxation law, competition law, copyright law, and where their activities would be focused very much on tending to corporate clients. And so I started to realize that Euro lawyering has very much evolved over time. And so how did it evolve? I think what's important to note is that while the pioneers of Euro lawyering might have been motivated by political idealism, where they didn't particularly care about which issue area they were mobilizing, they were trying to find any potential test case from agriculture to competition, whatever it was, from a small town, from a large town that could serve as a vehicle for Europeanization. The repertoire of strategic litigation that they invented, on the other hand, could be co-opted by a rising network of corporate law firms. There was nothing idealistic necessarily embedded in that repertoire of strategic litigation. And through the 1980s, big law was largely absent in Europe. It was hampered by state restrictions on inter-firm mergers, the number of firm offices, the number of lawyers that could practice in, in those offices. But as global competitive shifts and pressures in the legal services market, specifically from the British and American law firms, started chipping away at these restrictions, um, then the rise of European big law started to take off. So in cities like Paris in the 1990s, in Milano and Roma in the, uh, in, in the late 1990s, in Hamburg and Munich in the 2000s, we see this rising network of multinational corporate law firms specializing in European economic law. And 
it is in these firms nowadays that we find the Euro lawyers who are mobilizing national courts by ghostwriting preliminary references to the Court of Justice. And so what this does is it creates a kind of corporate ecology of Euro lawyering that is clustered in wealthier global cities. Because by paying high salaries and linking lawyers to deep pocketed corporate clients who have the resources and the time to fund this ambitious escapades to the European court, these corporate law firms, in some sense, pluck aspiring Euro lawyers from more rural areas or from poorer cities, and therefore stratify access to European justice. And you see this when you go visiting in national courts. You start to ask around, you know, which judge in your court has solicited the ECJ? And they send you to the specialized corporate chamber of the court. And then you start talking to those judges and they say, well, of course we have to solicit the ECJ because these corporate litigants come to us with an army of five, six, seven EU specialists who come ready with ready-made drafts of preliminary references. You know, so one, one longstanding judge in Paris told me, for instance, quote, today it's all about the diffusion of knowledge between these big law firms and the courts because these big firms are capable of launching investigations and producing pleadings based on EU law that are much more sophisticated than what judges can do. So the irony here is that at the very same time from the 1990s onward, that the content of European law is becoming much more sensitive to consumer protections, environmental rights, fundamental rights, in some sense, the interests of the public and the have-nots, the political economy of litigation and euro lawyering is moving in a countercurrent. It's re-centralizing within these core economic domains in which euro firms, corporate euro firms, are sort of um, the masters. It's really fascinating for me. It was fascinating to discover this kind of shift. And now it came to my mind one question. Uh, so how would you perceive the, the function of the European University Institute? Do you see this as a, um, as a university that produces kind of Euro lawyers or rather not? So that's a great question. I, my sense, my sense is that the European University Institute tends to produce um, more academically oriented EU law specialists rather than legal practitioners. So if you go to one of these big corporate law firms, if you go to Cleary Gottlieb, for instance, and you start to look at the professional CVs of their lawyers, most often they'll have a law degree from a national law school, and then they will have a master's in law, usually not from not a graduate degree from the European University Institute. It would rather be from, say, the College of Europe, or a British uh, university, say King's College or UCL, or um, an American law school, Harvard Law School, um, uh, uh, the University of Michigan Law School, uh, Yale Law School, where they study competition law in the United States and then bring that knowledge back uh, to, to Europe. And so this was also an interesting realization for me. Well, you know, early on, I wanted to sort of embed myself in the world of Euro lawyers. So I attended the Academy of European Law at the EUI. And I realized that most of the people I was surrounded with had 
kind of more academic ambitions or aspirations. They wanted to become law professors. And there were relatively few. I mean, there were some, but there were relatively few who wanted to become legal practitioners in corporate law firms. So is the EUI the central pole, the magnetic pole of Euro lawyer nowadays? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, yeah, so let us talk maybe about the current uh, problems of the rule of law situation in, in Europe, in the EU. Mm. So um, I will have a, a broader uh, observation because you, your empirical findings give us a unique insight into the everyday challenges that lower court judges face and among <coughs> many data that you already described. Two dubious cases caught my special attention. The first one is the case of Paolo Coppola, a judge from a civil court in Naples who submitted several references to the ECJ and because of that was threatened with disciplinary sanctions by the state legal service. Yes. And secondly, you talked about this French judge, which you already mentioned in our conversation, who admitted not referring the cases to the ECJ because of the fear of, of the higher, um, higher council of the state. So uh, one judge said she would perceive it as a professional negligence, as you mentioned. I thought here about one of the greatest rule of law problems um, that happened in Poland. So that the judges under broadly interpreted legal provisions might face disciplinary proceedings for referring mm -hmm. a case to the ECJ. So if mm -hmm. we were to compare these isolated cases, how would you assess judicial independence? Does the assessment change if we were to compare only black letter law with the empirical evidence, and to put it into broader perspective even, mm. is something worrying happening in older member states other than Hungary and Poland? That's a great question. Um, so let me break it, let me break the answer up into a series of parts. The first is um, I am convinced um, that the, when you go local, uh, when you when you start traveling in local communities throughout Europe, you're going to find significant institutionalized challenges to the application of European law, even in the judiciaries of founding member states, precisely because of those barriers that I talked about, right? They're overworked, they lack training in European law, and they too face careerist pressures. So you don't need a political party to take over the National Council of the Judiciary in order for lower court judges to feel a sense of career pressure. Sometimes that pressure comes from within a autonomous and independent judicial bureaucracy, a civil service judiciary, where it's national judges that sort of self-govern, but you still need to be, uh, you know, thinking about uh, tending to the uh, tending to your career and keeping good relations with your judicial superiors. So these are these are obstacles, bureaucratic obstacles to the Europeanization of national judiciaries that can occur even in situations where you have good judicial independence. Just having judicial independence is not sufficient to convert national judges into agents of Europeanization and faithful appliers of European law. You also have to overcome those bureaucratic obstacles that I talked about earlier. So that's the first, the first point. The second point, uh, there is some research that in more centralized and state-driven countries um, uh, that 
you know, are liberal democracies uh, like Denmark or Sweden, national judges oftentimes still take more direction from their national government or the Ministry of Justice than we might like. So, for instance, some of Marlene Wien's research on the Nordics uh, and the Nordic judges, she shows that when you have a judge, say, in Denmark, that's thinking, uh-oh, maybe there's an issue of noncompliance between national law and European law, they'll turn to the government and the Ministry of Justice and say, is there a preliminary reference that we should ask? And then the ministry can either quash that referral or will draft it in a way that alleviates some of the more potentially controversial non-compliance issues, right? So these are issues that occur even in EU member states in good standing, let's put it this way. That being said, the threats to judicial independence in Poland or Hungary are just on a whole new different scale. And I think what's happening is kind of interesting because what we're, what what uh, Fidesz in Hungary and peace in Poland are provoking is this clash whereby national judges are discovering the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights in a way that only a huge rule of law crisis would spark them to discover, right? Like there's a massive amount of judicial mobilization, especially in Poland, to appeal to the Court of Justice, the European Court of Human Rights, to write letters to the European Commission, to urge it to act as guardian of the treaties. So in some sense, there's a discovery of European law that only an existential crisis would provoke. But at the same time, there is an attempt by would-be autocrats like uh, Kaczynski and Viktor Orban to sever the ties between national courts and the European Court of Justice by disciplining judges who dare to refer a case to the Court of Justice uh, and, and the like, by you know, transferring them from the civil division to the family court division, to transferring them to a rural court. All of these games that are basically meant to make it very clear that if you want to remain a judge in our judiciary, you don't refer cases to the Court of Justice. And that's something that we don't see in the founding member states and is just a fundamental threat to the autonomy and the functioning of the European legal order that's just on, of a whole different magnitude. But all of this is to say there are challenges throughout the EU. There are challenges throughout the EU. They're magnified and on a whole different scale in countries like Poland and Hungary. Of course. The fact that you mentioned about the Polish lawyers, the Polish judges who are mobilizing EU law, uh, touches links nicely to the uh, question that I wanted to ask you about now. Because in concluding remarks, you state how contemporary rule of law crisis might be contained by the lawyers, exactly, who make mm. use of their knowledge of EU law and combat the illiberal policies, as it happens exactly with the Polish judges. But I was wondering mm -hmm. if the role of EU Euro lawyers is now assumed by EU scholars who exert every day a greater impact on public opinion, because apart from producing normal, normal academic work, they write op-eds, uh, and these op-eds are translated into national languages and participate in semi-academic debates. So do you think that they contribute in a different way, obviously, than Euro lawyers did? to the Europeanization process, or rather might create backlash against the EU project? Do you think that scholars have less institutional opportunity to shape cases in law? 
because some of the euro lawyers actually are quoted by AGs and actually have some influence on on mm. the development of EU law. That's a great question. Um, I think there is some of this uh, happening whereby the kind of the attempt to reclaim the liberal promise of the judicial construction of Europe, that sort of political liberalism and idealism of the first Euro lawyers has in many ways shifted from the legal professions to the legal academy as Euro lawyers are increasingly in some sense captured by corporate law firms, right? And and we know that, you know, corporate law firms haven't exactly been the leading voices to speak out against some of these liberal reforms in Poland and, and Hungary. Uh, and sometimes there's money to be made uh, from autocrats and uh, autocratizing reforms. And so legal academics are increasingly on the on the front lines. So I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, Alberto Alemano and the good, good lobby professors. Um, uh, I'm thinking of um, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Wojciech Sadurski in Poland. I'm thinking about Laurent Pesch. Uh, I'm thinking about John Morine. John Morine uh, and which uh, has uh, provided this like great service uh, to to the European public and the academic community by publishing blog posts detailing the legal harassment and attempt to silence Wojciech Sadurski in uh, in Poland um, through a series of of of, of um, abusive lawsuits. Um, and so this is very this is very important. It's also very important because the European Union and institutions like the European Commission la oftentimes lack sufficient investigatory capacity to have a real concrete sense of what's going on on the ground. And they're oftentimes reliant because of the principle of mutual trust upon the information that is supplied by a member state. And so by supplying kind of behind the scenes legal analyses that try to rebut the kind of misleading uh, uh, and obfuscatory reporting of, say, a Polish government or a Hungarian government, they help European institutions have a better sense of the rule of law challenges on the ground. And associations of Polish judges who also do the same sorts of things are absolutely essential in cutting through the fog of disinformation of you know an abusive state. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, there seems to be a lack of political will amongst EU institutions like the Council and the Commission to um, enforce European law uh, and protect uh, the rule of law in, in, in democratically backsliding states. It's only the European Court of Justice that seems quite responsive to efforts to safeguard, say, judicial independence, media freedom, and civil liberties in, in, in Poland and Hungary. And so what this suggests is that any form of legal mobilization that can get cases to the court of justice, that can get it to continue to develop this foundational rule of law and judicial independence case law, is going to continue to remain very important. And that means preliminary references, particularly in instances when the European Commission is reluctant to bring infringement cases against um, non-compliant member states. 
we could go even deeper in those threads that you mentioned right now, but due to the time constraints, we have to somehow wrap up. So my last question to you would be after, you know, what will be your next project? Because such after such a great endeavor, do you have already have plans for some academic new academic journey? So sometimes in podcasts, uh, you know, authors will say, "Oh, I've just published this book, and here's my second book already in the works." <laughs> uh, I have to say, I, I I don't quite know how they do it. Um, it feels totally overwhelming to think about what my next, you know, eight or ten year. A book project will be. Um, so right now I have smaller, a series of smaller projects that I'm currently working on. Um, so the first is um, with Daniel Kellerman. Um, we are trying to unpack why the European Commission has been so reluctant in the past 20 years to enforce European law across all member states, but also specifically in the cases of Hungary and Poland. Um, and so in some sense, this is a total pivot from some of my research where I've studied the development of European law from the bottom up from local communities. Now I'm starting to do more interview and ethnographic research within the Berlaymont to try to get a little bit of a sense of the politics, the top down politics of enforcing EU law and European values. And one of the things that we're finding that is quite interesting is that the enforcement of European law is increasingly politicized at the European Commission. Um, it's increasingly being driven by the political calculations of the Commission presidency and historically important uh, institutions within the Commission, like the legal service, are increasingly marginalized in decisions over whether or not to enforce European law. So in some sense, it's the opposite finding of some of my research. In some sense, the lawyers have a diminishing impact at the European Commission and the politicians have sort of re sought to regain the reins of EU law enforcement. And this has contributed to a general reluctance to enforce European law at the Commission. So that's one project. Um, a second project seeks to sort of unpack what happens when cases get to the European Court of Justice. My book focuses very much on legal mobilization before national courts. And I don't take the extra step of following these lawsuits all the way to Luxembourg to sort of understand what happens there. And so I have a project with a political scientist in Copenhagen, Celia Hermansen, that seeks to unpack how the European Court of Justice uses its own entrepreneurship and discretion to spotlight some cases, some litigants, and some legal claims over others. And so, for instance, one of our preliminary findings is that even though the political economy of litigation at the national level, as I found in my book, is increasingly sort of becoming co-opted by corporate clients and corporate law firms, more resourceful actors, the haves, the European Court of Justice oftentimes uses its discretion to try to rebalance this and to promote the legal claims of individual litigants with fewer resources. So that's kind of a heartening finding, right, that the European Court of Justice tries to also serve as a weapon of the weak, even though the political economy of litigation is increasingly favoring the interests of the strong. And the third um, project uh, is continuing down this avenue of European legal history. So for instance, I'm currently working on a book chapter uh, unpacking the story of one of the Euro lawyers in my book, uh, whose name is Nicola Catalano. And Nicola Catalano is an absolutely fascinating figure because he's usually 
seldom remembered as one of the founders of European law, but he played an absolutely indispensable role. Most of the time, people just remember him as a one of the first judges in the European Court of Justice. He served from 1958 to 1961, but he actually had way more impact before he was on the court and after he was on the court. Because before he was on the court, he was part of the Italian delegation of the Groupe Juridique to draft the Treaty of Rome. And he's the one that proposed the preliminary reference procedure, Article 177, that would link national courts to the European Court of Justice. Then he gets appointed to the Court of Justice, and he realizes that national judges aren't using the preliminary reference procedure. So his baby, his institutional solution to sort of create European legal integration wasn't working. It wasn't enough to just create Article 177. Someone needed to mobilize it. So when he was pushed out of the Court of Justice by his own home, home government, he becomes a practicing Euro lawyer. And he starts to create test cases before national courts and to push them to avail themselves of the preliminary reference procedure that he himself had contributed to inserting into the Treaty of Rome. So he's an absolutely fascinating figure. Uh, and, and it shows this kind of disillusionment with a functionalist view of the European legal order. And what I mean by that is this disillusionment with the sense that if you build it, they will come. If you create the European institutions, naturally, you would have this legal revolution within the member states. And instead, it shows the blood, sweat and tears that legal practitioners needed to shed at the local level on the ground to make EU law uh, real. And this is the way how we came back to the ghostwriters. So yes. it all sounds very fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to reading your next articles and book chapters and probably next book also in some time. So thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. It was a great honor and, and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. So here we will end and up until the next time. Bye.